Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, you, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we ponder and think if we could only see what John saw, there would be no shred of doubt in us today. That you have ascended to the throne, that you are over all things, things that seem out of control, Lord, you are there. And so we pray, even in these brief moments, would you help us to see you now with hearts of faith? We ask for your presence amongst us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, I asked the Lord for one thing. One thing only I asked of the Lord. And I inquired and I sought after and asked. And I have to tell you, it was not a 2023 Toyota Tundra four-door dark gray with a lift kit. It wasn't it. I wanted to, but that's not what I asked for. Nor was it a Gibson Lore F5 mandolin from 1923, valued at $177,000. No, friends, I didn't ask for perfect children. I didn't ask for a dream home. I didn't ask even for an official Red Rider, Red Rider carbon action 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass and a stock and a thing that tells time. No, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That is what the psalmist asked for, to dwell in the temple, to inquire and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. In fact, the psalmist elsewhere so sure of this reality that he would be in the presence of God, this one thing that he really wants. He says, surely, there's not a shred of doubt. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And and this brings to mind what we read in chapter 1 in the book of Revelation, where Jesus makes the exclusive claim to be the one who is going to admit people into that temple or keep them out. 
In fact, uh, it's, it's the very thing that the psalmist is talking about. Christ is. He is the one to open the door. You recall at the very first chapter of this book of Revelation, where John, he enters into this temple scene. He desires to be there, but when he does, he falls down as though dead at this vision of Christ. And Christ puts his hand on, on his right hand on his shoulder and he says, fear not. Um, I am the first and the last. He says, I, I, I was, I am the living one. He says, I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. And Jesus says in that moment there in chapter one, he says, I have the keys to death and to Hades. So the implication is there, he's the one who's able to put people there and keep them there or let them out. But here, to this church in Philadelphia, we get the other side of that same coin. Christ is the one with the keys to not just keep people in Hades, but to admit people into heaven and to open the door wide for them there. And as you read this section here with Philadelphia, you have to wonder, Where is Christ coming from? What is the issue here with these keys, with the keys in David and the opening and the shutting? Why is all of this in view here with this church that's being addressed to in Philadelphia? Well, you do remember and recall that much of Revelation is referencing and alluding to passages from the Old Testament. Um, And here with Philadelphia, Christ brings to mind the book, I would argue, of Isaiah. As you turn... The pages of the gospel of Isaiah, according to Isaiah, there's some notable things that make you just stop and an eyebrow begins to raise as you consider what is going on here. One of the passages that you come to right off the beginning of, of uh, Isaiah is, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And then you keep reading about this one who's to come and you're you're keeping this in mind and you come to chapter 22 where it is spoken regarding the Valley of Vision. And here in the Valley of Vision, this is where the Israelites are. In the Valley of Vision is the place that they should be seeing, but they don't see. They're blind in the Valley of Vision. And this leader is there. His name is Shebna. He's the one trying to help lead the nation in this Valley of Vision. And it becomes very clear that he was after protecting himself and he wasn't after following Yahweh, following the Lord. And this leader, Shebna, had, the the picture is this, that he carved out in a rock, a, a protective place for him, a cave where he would be safe. And the Lord says to this leader in Israel, he says, You've carved out this place to protect yourself, but I'm going to grab you and I'm going to whirl you and throw you like a shot put. He says, you think that you're safe, but I'm going to put in another leader there. And then we read not of Shebna, but of Eliakim. And Eliakim there in that place, we read these words that then are connected with our passage. Eliakim will hold the keys of power. He will be able to open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. And then Yahweh says, I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And so we go, oh, maybe this Eliakim is the one that was referenced earlier about this wonderful counselor, this one whom the, the, would be a, the, the government would rest upon his shoulders. But sadly, we read that even this peg on which the whole nation hung and God's people hoped in would sadly come falling down. And so would the people of God. 
And it leaves you wondering, will there ever be a secure peg? Would there be a place that would be hung where we could rely on and never fall? Enters Jesus Christ from behind the veil who says, now I've got the keys. I'm the one who opens and no one will shut. I'm ultimately the one who shuts and no one will open. And this language of closing and opening is key to the book of Isaiah because one of the major issues raised in the entire book of Isaiah is who gets in? Who gets into the kingdom? Who's kept out of the kingdom and why? Is there hope for you? Is there hope for me? You read in Isaiah 26 that we have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. We're, we read there that the open the gates and the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Followed by a later reading in Isaiah 56 where God boldly announces, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say that the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, The eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. So the outsider's question, how is it that we will make it through those gates? And God is essentially saying to the people, don't fret, hold fast to the Lord, to his promises in faith, and you will indeed enter into the house. How? Well, Isaiah 53 shows us only those whose sin is atoned for will be forgiven and truly enter in. For he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone here to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus, seeing that all these streams from Isaiah, you, you might think that these are independent streams that go off on their own direction. But as you trace through and see each of these little streams in Isaiah, they all find at the exact same spot their confluence. They all land right on Jesus Christ. So that he is able to proclaim to us. The keys are in his hand. He is the one whom is the peg that is securely fastened. And he will never fail. On which the totality of God's people, both in the old covenant and the new, are able to rest and find their forgiveness. To find their transgressions forgiven and find their entrance into the city wide open. So that even those who were outsiders, people who said, I'm not sure if I can make it in. He's saying, come on in. You believe? You're in. Come on in. And, and a church here that receives this message, this church of Philadelphia, needed to hear these words. They were a church much like Smyrna, in which Christ had nothing negative to say. And so he says, I know your works. Look down at verse 8 here where we see this. It says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Now, coming out of last week's uh, rebuke to Sardis, the church at Sardis, where he says, I know your works, and there it was a negative connotation. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Here we get the inverse. It's, I know your works. You seem to have nothing, church. You seem to be insignificant. You seem to be forgotten. You seem to have very little power, and yet you are the ones who have fellowship with me. You are the ones granted entrance 
into the heavens. Now, the apocalypse, the revealing, this book, the revelation, it constantly says to us things are not as they seem. Success, riches, an easy way of life can be false indicators. And likewise, here, having little power seems to reveal to us, no, they're the ones who have bold access and entrance. From a God's eye vantage point, their faith, their testimony, and victory in Christ will not be in vain. To the contrary, they will find that the Savior that loves them and welcomes them. You see that here. Here's what we discover is that those who assumed that God loved them find out that they are in line with the work of Satan. And that Jesus, the sovereign King of Kings and Lord of Lords, has love and specifically a love for those who may be insignificant. This is important. It's bound up with the whole gospel. And yet they do not deny Jesus, but they keep his name. They don't shy away from calling themselves Christians. They don't shy away from saying, I follow Christ. Uh, I believe in him. He is where my hope is found. And Christ says, these are the ones that I love. Love is not mentioned over and over in the Revelation. You know, uh, the Apostle John, who we believe wrote this book, and we also believe wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. You go to 1st John, and love is just about on every other verse. I mean, love is everywhere. But in the Revelation, it appears quite a few times. Uh, quite a few times it appears there. Um, and so, the few times that it does show up, well, you want to stop and pause and say, ah, what is going on here? Christ's love to the church. And this harkens us back to one of the key texts in the book, back in chapter 1, where we first read of love. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, the cross is surely where we see the greatest expression of love. Now, here's what I would like to make very clear. The cross is so much more than an expression of Christ's love. But it's not less than that. Are you with me? That the cross is, yes, where we can see most clearly the love of Christ. It's doing a whole lot more than just saying, here's how much I love you. Because it's our very redemption. But it is no less than the greatest expression of how much Christ loves his church, his people. That he should die for them. And here with the Philadelphian church, they are the objects of Christ's love inasmuch as much as they cling to the one who has freed them from their sins by his blood. The whole re- reason this language of keys and doors and shutting out and welcoming into the household of God is bound up with what the Philadelphian church was most likely experiencing. They have little power, little sway, little influence. And in their relationship to the Jewish synagogue, what we can very safely read between the lines here and say they must have been persecuting them. It's no stretch at all to see that they were being shut out of the local synagogue. They were cast out saying, the doors are closed for you. You don't get to come in here. You don't get to have worship with God. You don't get to be in his presence. You don't get to be with God's people. You are cut out. Look at verse 9 through 11 here. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. And I will keep you from the hour of trial that is 
coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will seize your crown. Now, let me just briefly interject here that this idea of Christ coming quickly at this point. Um, This is in reference where we see elsewhere where Christ may be coming quickly to bring judgment upon a church. And and here, this coming quickly, I would say, is is in reference to not his, his coming to judge the Philadelphian church, not even the end, the end to end coming to wrap up all of creation and history, but this coming is coming quickly to provide protection for them, to swiftly come in and to assure them that their salvation, their open door uh, to them will be that they will have this open door. And so we have these two keepings where Christ says, look, these Philadelphians, they, they, these Christians, they kept Christ and now Christ will keep them from the hour of trial. Now, in, in context, uh, the, the trial that they will be kept from is not uh, tribulation. So you, there is a way of reading this, and, and it is possible to read this and say, well, oh, these, these Christians will be kept from, from, from tribulation. I, I don't see that in view here. Because, Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, I, John, your fellow brother and partner in the tribulation. John's writing these churches who are already in tribulation. Uh, I think Jesus' high priestly prayer may shed more light on this where we read about Christ. He's praying to the Father in his last moments. And he says, Father, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask, listen, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. In other words, out of tribulation, out of trials, out of the struggle, but that you keep them from the evil one. You catch that? That you keep them from the work of Satan. I think the trial that Jesus here is protecting his faithful bride from is the dragon, the one who seeks to devour the work of Satan to lie to us, who comes to rob, to steal, to kill and destroy. I think that that is what Christ is saying. I will protect you from. He will not have sway over you. He will not lead you. And to which some of you say, well, Thomas, are you trying to say that there's going to be no final heightening of chaos at the end uh, before Christ returns? That, that's not at all what I'm saying. But, but just as Revelation wants to awaken us to the spiritual battle that surrounds us each moment, so too it wants to awaken us to the tribulation that we face collectively as the church for remaining in Christ. A tribulation, surely, that these Philadelphians were under, and one in which our fellow Christians right now are under. In India, as I speak right now, they are under tribulation. As I speak right now, our fellow Christians in Nigeria are under tribulation and persecution and trials that would blow your mind. Friends, Revelation paints in black and white so that everyone gets the wrath of something. Nobody gets free. Nobody gets off free. Everybody's going to receive the wrath of something. If you read through the book of Revelation, that's what becomes very clear. There's two categories. You keep reading. It's very black and white. You either get the wrath of the lamb or you receive the wrath of the dragon. But the choice is yours. Which will you receive? Do you choose which it will be? But friends, nobody escapes. Here the picture is that the dragon has infiltrated the religious synagogue and has led them to persecute and shut out these followers, these disciples. So that these Christians, through the local congregation, were receiving the wrath of the dragon, this persecution, 
Those who claimed they speak for God were shutting out the true people of God. And Christ says, there's nothing but an open door for you. No one can shut you out, period. In a world where you and I are strangers and aliens, we feel like we are outsiders, don't we? In fact, it would be rather strange if we felt perfectly comfortable and at home here. Your family can disown you. They can say, uh, you know, we invite others over for the holidays, but not you. You're not invited. Your coworkers, they can mock you. They can shut you out. But this king who has the keys, he opens a door that nobody will shut. No one will shut you out. There's just one thing I ask of the Lord. Just one thing that I desire to be in the presence of my God, in his temple, unhindered, so I could gaze upon the beauty and the glory, this truth, this light, this love, this consuming fire that's coming to me off the throne. So now what? Look at verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear here, let him hear what the Spirit says to these churches. Well, the king with his keys, he opens a door that no one can shut. And it's true that if you're in Christ, no one will shut you out. And so we ask, well, now what? Hold fast and enter in. Isn't that what we see in these closing verses? Hold fast. One of the most striking things is that the New Testament takes the old covenant physical building structure of a temple where God's presence dwells, and it blows up the idea of these bricks, uh, where in the Old Testament you see that God's presence was relegated into the Holy of Holies in this building. But as you approach the New Testament, you see a transfer. So it's not just a physical building that God is dwelling in. It's in the person of Christ where he says, destroy this temple. And then in the church age where we see him saying, my presence is in the temple, but not this building, not these locks. It's in the church. And this is the language. And to the one who conquers through the tribulation, they are crowned, which is connecting us with the king. And we are pictured as pillars. You see that? The building language is now moved from the physical bricks to the reality of the people of Christ. And if you're actually making up this building, if you're a pillar in this building, how will you ever be kicked out? You're ingrained into it. You can't be kicked out. You belong there. Further, in a book where we see that there are only two camps of people, the saints who, and those who remain outside, what do we see on the foreheads of those who reject Jesus? Now, many of you are very familiar. This has been an, an area of interest for so many people um, going off about the, the mark of the beast, the mark, this name um, of, of the beast. And those who remain outside of the kingdom of God, those who rejected Christ and followed the dragon, those are the ones who have received this mark, and it's on their forehead. And on their hand, right? And so that revelation shows us that they belong to somebody. And if these people have been marked to belong to the dragon, well, then likewise, we see that there are people who are marked to belong 
to the lamb. Everybody gets a name, just like everybody gets the wrath of something. Everybody gets the mark and the name of someone. And so we see here what Revelation is doing where we find them having a name that is imprinted and ingrained on him. From an earthly perspective, we can't ever be for sure. Fully sure. I mean, you might be the kindest, nicest person I've ever, ever met. You, 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 you might, uh, you know, be so kind and so generous and yet, in the reality of it all, be the son of a devil. But here, with the veil being lifted up and everybody being marked, it's very clear who belongs to God and who rejects him. See, friends, nobody's going to end up at those gates, at that door, in that kingdom, in the wrong place. No one will be on the wrong side of that wall because everybody has a name and it will be very clear right from the get-go who belongs to who. And this is apocalyptic's way of trying to portray that you're sealed in Christ, that his name and the new city are yours and that you have an entrance into it And actually, not just an entrance into the city, you're part of the city. You're the structural support of it, the pillar of it. Why why the name of God and the name of the city? Why are these things in connection here? I want to suggest that as humans, we desire and need two things. That two things are kind of built into our identity, aren't they? You and I, we need a place to belong to, and we need a person to belong to, don't we? And... I'm telling you, if you are a Christian, you have both. And both of these things are radically secure. Christians who are safe in Christ have a place to belong to and a person to belong to. Do you have that? Is your future secure? Are you safe in him? If you're not sure, there is a way for you to become sure. The doors are only open to those who follow the lamb. And the language through the book of Revelation is they follow the lamb wherever he goes. So Christ's words to you this morning are to trust and to believe on the lamb and to follow him. The lamb who was slain for you and for I. And then even in our passage here to hold fast to this. Friends, there are others here who follow the lamb. And if you're not sure, Speak with the fellow Christian here. Speak with myself or one of the elders after service. We want everyone here to be sure that their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That Christ's name and the the name of the city is on their foreheads. Everyone must stand at those gates. Everyone's going to stand at this door. Picture you. I just picture in your mind for a moment. Picture you standing there and the angels and the guards at the gates coming out. They're coming out and they're going, who are you? What do you think you're doing here? And then you begin to tremble and you come approaching and as you get closer, they begin to see the name imprinted on you. And they read this name and they say, oh, <laughs> come on in. You belong here. On you is the name of Christ. On you is the name of the city of my God, these doors are open wide to you. Do you not think that that won't be a big moment in your life? That moment when you step in, that will be everything. Everything will hinge on that moment when the doors are wide open to you. Jesus will say, this is one. This is one whom I died for. This is one whom I love. 
the king with his keys who opens a door that nobody can shut. Proverbs, friends, has echoed this big idea. In fact, you could almost just say it's the big idea of our passage here this morning is the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous runs into it and is safe. Christians, we have a firm foundation that secures for us a level of peace that when everything else comes crumbling down, and it will, we're fine. Ultimately, we're fine. Some of us struggle with feelings of insecurity so that when the stock market dives, we begin to fret about our retirement. When the news pumps out the next thing about World War III or a nuclear fallout, we begin to lose sleep or, or get too anxious about it. Or when the next cancer diagnosis comes in, and this time it's terminal. Or when the family or the workplace situation is so volatile and you constantly feel like an outsider, like an outcast, you're shut out. What is it that's going to help us make it? When we look to Christ and we say our future is so secure that you and I, we look beyond this next year. You and I, we look beyond the next 10 years and we're peering over that little hill into eternity where everything is radically, radically secure because Christ is the peg on which we all hang and he is never to let go. Christ, friends, is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He's the one who is faithful and true, who has the crown. Christ, friends, is the one who has the keys, who's opening the door wide for you and saying, you'll never be shut out. Friends, Christ is the pillar upon which all of us, as smaller pillars, will stand. And I think those words landed in Philadelphia in a particular way. These Philadelphian Christians would have read that word pillar, and I think their eyebrows would have raised up a bit at it. Why? Because in AD 17, something interesting happened. In AD 17, there was an earthquake in which Philadelphia happened to be the very epicenter of the earthquake. The the earthquake flattened the entire city. The Philadelphians there at the time, they actually wrote to Caesar and they said, please help. Uh, The city is completely decimated. We need help. And uh, Caesar then sent massive amounts of funds for the rebuilding of the city. And then what uh, partook was they renamed the city for a temporary season. They named it to Neo Caesarea. In other words, to honor the Caesar who helped in the rebuilding of the city. Now, surely there would have been people who were still alive at this moment where the Philadelphians were written to by the apostle John here with this vision. And I believe that they would have raised an eyebrow because even at this point, there were many people who, because of the stories of their grandparents or their parents, or even being young enough to remember it, they began to go outside of the city at night. Normally you would sleep in the city, but when you've experienced such trauma that the entire city collapsed, you would go out to your hut at night where it was safer to sleep, lest you be asleep when the earthquake would hit and the pillars come tumbling down and you lose your entire family. Um, I, I think with, they would have been intrigued saying, ah, what we're seeing here with Christ as a firm foundation which no earthquake will bring down this building. No earthquake will make these pillars fall. That with this people in this place, they have everything secure. That this is an unshakable firm foundation. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in God's excellent word. What more can be said to you than God has said to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? 
There's just one thing I ask. One thing I seek that I desire. That I can be in your temple, Lord. That I can gaze upon your face. That everything then would become crystal clear. That I would have love unhindered. That I would know who I belong to. My very identity and all of my struggles and issues gone. Friends, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray the words of your son. Not that you would take us out of the world, but that you would protect us from the evil one. Lord, would you ingrain in us security and safety, knowing that no matter what happens around us, we will be secure in Christ. That ultimately our hope and our joy is not founded on the issues of our time, or the struggles of our home, or the rebuke and tribulation that we face in the workplace or in our family. But it is a joy that looks beyond all these things. So, Father, we, we pray that by your Spirit we will have these things in abundance. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.